Dr. Kim Henneman is a native of Utah. She did her undergraduate studies at Utah State University and her veterinary training at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, graduating in 1986. She was certified by IVIS in acupuncture in 1991, by the AVCA in animal chiropractic, and Chinese herbal medicine by IVIS in 2000. She has training in both basic and advanced classical homeopathy. She achieved fellow status with the AAVA in 2008 and was board certified by the American College of Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation both in 2013, canine, and 2014, equine. She's the only diplomat in the college to be credentialed in both disciplines. She also has expertise in thermal imaging for both diagnosis and rehabilitation. Her holistic practice is located in Park City, Utah, but her interests and skills have taken her around the globe, both teaching and performing clinical duties. She is a well-respected veterinarian for sled, working, performance, and search and rescue dogs, as well as performance horses in numerous disciplines. Dr. Henneman has served her profession by being on the board of directors of both the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, as well as the American Academy of Veterinary Acupuncture. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kim Henneman as we discuss her veterinary education, holistic training, and her work in holistic veterinary medicine, both in Utah and around the world. Dr. Henneman, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Neil. I appreciate it. So you grew up in Utah. I did. I did. I grew up in Salt Lake and Park City and all the wild places around the area and out overseas as well, too. I spent a lot of time traveling as a kid. Uh, what was what was home like life? Was it animal filled? Oh, absolutely. Despite the fact that my dad did not like cats, or so he said, he would have his morning coffee with one of them every single morning. How how early? I mean, were, did you grow up in town, or were you out out a bit? Well, we were kind of out in the suburbs, and uh, then I would get driven out a little bit further when I wanted to do my riding lessons because I started riding pretty early as well. And um, so we were kind of like sort of the classic 1960s, 1970s suburbia with a big yard and a house and plenty of animals and close to farmland. What kind of riding did you do when you were young? Uh, I started uh, in dressage. Actually, no, that's not true. I actually, my first few lessons were actually in Western with a Western saddle. And then I switched over to dressage and jumping and kind of done a little bit of all kinds of things ever since. When did you decide you want to be a veterinarian? I don't remember. It was so far back, I think, around kindergarten. I think it was after my flight attendant phase. And then I'm pretty sure I locked down into uh, wanting to be a veterinarian. And you talk to my uh, high school and junior high school classmates, and they're like, oh, yeah, she always kind of wanted to say she wanted to be a vet. I was pretty locked and loaded from a pretty early phase. Cool. Um, So Utah State for undergrad. Utah State for undergrad, because it was close to home. Yeah. What'd you study? Uh, they called it bioveterinary science, but technically it was just a degree for passing all your requirements to get into school. But I had so much chemistry for a couple of, because I was, you know, casting a wide net. Because at the time that I applied, it was, as probably with you, it was uh, hard to get into school. So um, I cast a pretty wide net and tried to kind of load the the resume and the uh, all my class lists to make sure I could cover a bunch of different schools. So if I had taken just one more chemistry class, I would have had a minor in chemistry. Actually, I dual major in chemistry, but I had a minor in chemistry, but I just couldn't do P-chem. Just couldn't bring myself to do it. So Uh, didn't do it. 
So where did you apply? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I applied to, uh, at that time, California was so full, even though, so I was uh, here in Utah, I was part of the Witchy program. So we had um, a little bit of an inside track for California, Colorado, Washington slash Oregon. And um, so I uh, applied to Colorado for sure. Um, but I got my requirements done earlier for Purdue and Cornell. And so I applied to them first. I did not get into veterinary school the first time that I applied uh, because I was uh, interviewed by a bunch of cow vets and they just kind of they didn't think women should be in vet school. And they kind of threw me some questions. I'm like, well, I'm not really sure how to do that. But I did know how to open a feed bag, but I didn't know how to do some of the other things they asked. And uh, so I didn't get in. And when I called and asked, despite the fact I had a 4.0 in my GPA, and when I called to ask how to improve my uh, application for the following year, the answer I got was live another year. And I went, well, I was kind of already planning on that. So uh, the following year, I applied again to Purdue and Cornell. And then I added um, Washington, Oregon and Colorado. And uh, I think that was it because California was pretty much off the record, according to what my my advisor said, because they had such a backlist. and They were taking so few out of state students. So ah. I got in. I got into Purdue, and uh, didn't even go to my interviews with Washington and, and Colorado because I'd already really liked Purdue so much when I had visited them the year before for interviewing, and I thought, you know, it's the people that are going to make or break my education, and they were wonderful. So that's where I went. Cool. So uh, confirm or deny you selected Purdue because your classmate was going to be Pedro Rivera. Uh, I, if I had known ahead of time what Pedro was like ahead of time, that certainly would have swayed me for sure to Purdue and I wouldn't have applied anywhere else. But uh, it just was an extra benefit once I got there and found out how much fun he was to tease. It was just a happy accident. It was a happy accident. And just if anybody wants to know, I've got a plenty. I was the photographer for the class. So I have plenty of very blackmailable photographs of many people, including Pedro. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, right. How many were in your class? Um, I think we started with 72, and I think we ended up graduating with 59, or sorry, 69, 69. We lost a few and gained one. So what was it like moving to the Midwest? Oh, from a Utah kid, I'll tell you, it was flat. <laughs> it was really flat. I learned very quickly that uh, West Lafayette blizzards, like our joke was, it's uh, not West Lafayette wasn't the end of the world, but you could see it right over there. Um, it was. Um, I discovered that Indiana, the famous Midwest blizzards, was actually just the snow blowing back and forth between Ohio and Illinois. And the fun part was when some classmates said, oh, let's go skiing. And I'm like, really? Where am I from? And they said, oh, you're just such a ski snob. And they said, well, let's go skiing anyway. So I did because I was desperate. And we went to some ski resort. I think it was on the border in Michigan where they dug a hole and piled the dirt on the other side. And I just kind of looked at it and said, well, I just will go ski when I get home. <laughs> For Christmas. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. Was it, how was it cloudy there? Oh yeah. But it was there. There, I still remember a lot of really beautiful spring and summer days. I spent a couple summers there working. So yeah. it was just humid. Didn't have to worry. And then at home, of course, we don't have to worry about tornadoes. I had to kind of plug that into my database of learning how to tell when that's an issue. And so there was a lot to really enjoy about living in Indiana. There are parts of it I really miss. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your goal when you were in school? Was it going to be mixed animal practice? Did you have any idea? Oh, no. My goal was actually to join NASA. I wanted to be an astronaut. Nice. Yeah, they were hiring for mission and, and uh, for mission specialists. And I had a friend who was an astronaut. And she said, I can walk your application in. And she did, actually, because I did apply. 
So, but it didn't go. I got down another road because of some health issues and some personal things that happened. And voila, here I am. All right. So what happened? At, where'd you go after graduation? Uh, I came home because my mother was terminally ill. And so I had to come home and I got a job with our local vet. And it was through him I was introduced to acupuncture. So kind of how the universe, funny how the universe works, huh? Oh, yeah. Did, no exposure in school then? No, I had a little bit. Scavma, I had some interest in it. And we had, you know, the Scavma, the student chapter of the AVMA meetings. And I do remember one year there was some acupuncture that was, I think actually we had it at Michigan. The Scavma meeting was at Michigan. And um, there was a veterinarian, I don't remember who it was now, who um, might have been, I wonder if it was Shelly, um, what was Shelly's last name? Al- Alterman? Altman, yeah. Altman, yeah. It might have been Shelley that spoke, actually. And um, and I thought, wow, that is like really cool. So I did get exposed there, um, but I not it wasn't enough exposure to take me off track at the time to get a job with NASA. <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice. right. <laughs> so was it a small practice that you joined then? Yes. I was uh, the third veterinarian, and um, the veterinarian who owned the practice uh, was actually one of the first veterinarians who was certified by IVIS. And at that time, that was when Ivis was offering the classes only every other year. And I went, oh, that's kind of interesting. And he'd kind of acupuncture us once in a while. My very first point ever acupunctured on me was stomach 36. And yeah. I, hi- I highly recommend not doing it at five o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. Because, no, because I was up cleaning the house till about two in the morning when it kicked <laughs> in. <laughs> so, was it like, a mixed practice or no. what kind of practice was it? Just it, was just, it was just companion animal, right? Yeah. Well, and so some exotics. You- so how long were you there? About four years. Um, when did you take the IVIS course then? I took the IVIS course uh, 89, I believe is when it was. And it was the first year they started going every year. Where was it the year you took it? Yes, it was in Tampa. Oh, nice. And that's so that where was, I met that... Peggy Fleming, right? Great. Yeah. 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 All right. So you were still in your first practice then when you took it? Correct. All right. Then what happened after? Well, uh, so I ended up leaving that practice. I transitioned to another practice and I didn't ended up doing, I wanted to do my own equine. So I did, I started my own equine practice and then I was doing relief work in the area because there was quite a need for relief veterinarians, which was actually excellent because it showed me a lot of different approaches to practice. And I picked up a lot of clinical tricks and, um, uh, so I then gradually start some of the areas that I was re- doing relief work for started becoming a little more regular. And so I started working for those practices a little bit more regularly. And I ended up working for, uh, one of the practices in the area that, um, was, uh, one of the first, um, of the kind of the model where they use, where they're having like a franchise kind of a thing. It was one of the all pet complexes started by Marty Becker. Um, and then the guy who owned it bought it, turned it into his own practice. And then, uh, so I, I ended up becoming a regular veterinarian there. It was probably about a six person practice. We had a really active uh, emergency practice. And I mean, it was really great if you like to do a lot of different variety in medicine, because we did a lot. And he was totally open about, you want to do chiropractic? Go for it. You want to do acupuncture? Go for it. So... I adjusted, uh, what, what, I, sorry, I adjusted a turkey there. That was when he got convinced is when I adjusted a turkey's neck. Oh, man. Right. That so was. When did you uh, do the options course? I did uh, options when Sharon was still teaching it. And I took that one the following year. I think that was the second year they offered it. So I think yeah. that was 90 to 91. All right. All right. Before they moved to Hillsdale, I think it was probably at the original place. Yeah. Yeah, it was still. Yeah. The original place in the four. What they call that? The four. Um, 
They, oh gosh. It was, yeah, they're in Iowa, Illinois. I forget. Yeah, no. Quad Cities. No, yeah. Moline. It was in Moline. Yeah, Quad Moline, Cities. Yeah. Yep, Quad Cities. There you go. It's in there. It's got to dredge it up. Yeah. So how was it? Was that, um, had you been adjusted even before you went to, oh, to class? Oh, no. Uh, well, no, because I was raised in a family where chiropractors were considered quacks. And mm-hmm. my uncle, the only other medical person in my family was my uncle who lived in Africa. And he was a Methodist missionary and he started a hospital and a mission in Zaire. And he was so against anything that was integrative. He probably still is rolling in his grave that I kind of went down this road because I was kind of, he was my mentor and I was kind of like his little protege. And uh, um, he had passed away by the time I had uh, decided to go down this road. But, uh, oh, no, I was never adjusted as a child. And, And I saw it when I was getting certified in acupuncture and I was working with Earl Sutherland. So Peggy Fleming and I went and spent a couple days with him down at Gulfstream Racetrack just to watch him and to learn. And I saw him do some chiropractic on horses and I went, wow, first of all, that was amazing. Second of all, oh, my God, the audibles. And, uh, and yet the horses then trot off, you know, and we did a couple of horses that were, um, you know, grade one stake or grade three, I forget now how they even did high level stakes horses. One had actually run in the Derby in the Kentucky Derby. And, uh, he adjusted the knee and there was a huge audible and the horse went from like a grade one and a half to two lame to perfectly sound. And I went, huh, there must be something to that. So he, he probably, I mean, obviously you were, you were in the second options class, so he learned it from someone else. Yeah. He learned it from, uh, Marvin Kane. Oh, wow. Yeah, just the little stuff that they would pick up here and there. It was kind of like the unregulated chiropractic of the time. Yeah. So, um, and I look at some of the techniques now and go, oh, man, have we come a long way. Thank yeah. You. Thank goodness. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like going to going to options and sitting next to chiropractors? Uh, it was great. I'll tell you. Uh, it was wonderful to, I mean, I just loved all the... Uh, discussions. And um, I mean, I'll tell you the time that, and it wasn't even just chiropractors, right? Because we had Dave Duckett, the farrier come do, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, you know, he did the hoof dissection and the functional mechanics of the foot. And I remember everybody, the veterinarians, not everybody. So, so many of the veterinarians, those of us doing horses were like, right, what are we going to learn from a farrier? Um, and we were all blown away and realized that, you know, there are many levels of allied professionals that we all will be stronger if we work together. And I still remember that demonstration and lecture that Dave Duckett gave. Uh, it was, it was amazing. It was very eye opening. It was like a little bit of an epiphany for me. So, you know, I had forgotten about Dave, but now that you mentioned him, I, I do recall him being recalls having him lecture and having it be really great. Yeah. It was really amazing. Wasn't it? Even though you're not yeah. a horse guy, right? Well, I was at the time. Oh, you were? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. 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 So, okay, so you, you're you doing this relief work and and you'd started this equine practice from scratch. Right. Um, so at what point do you transition away from that? Uh, transition away from? From the relief work. And, uh, and do well, so that I, they kind of scooped me up at the Alpet Complex and I worked there until they sold to VCA. They were one of the first clinics to sell to VCA. And uh, it was very quickly apparent that having a bean counter control what you do for medicine was not going to work for me. It wasn't going to be an environment where I think I could be happy. So I quit pretty quickly. And uh, one of my colleagues scooped me up to do a little bit of relief work at her integrative practice, not far from here. And then when she decided to wind down a couple of years later, I just thought, you know, I just bite the bullet. And so that's when I started um, my, uh, I kind of merged everything, went out on my own completely and stopped the relief work. And um, then 
uh, did I was doing at home. I was doing ambulatory small animal and equine. And then I moved into a fixed location, probably around 2000 of my own. And, and I've been here ever since. Was that a, was that a good move going to a fixed location? Absolutely. It was absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause every now and then I'd have to see people at my house and that, but that wasn't a good thing. So. Yeah. And doing a fair amount of driving for the horse work. I still do. Yes. But yes, at that time I was doing a little more. Um, so when, when did the, I know you're multi-state licensed. Did you do that right away or at what point did that come? That probably started in 93 and, uh, probably when it's not soon after, not, yeah, pretty quickly after I left the practice that I first started at, uh, where I got the IVA certification and, um, I, I'm trying to remember how that even started. I think it got started because at that time there was a traveling show of Lipizzans called the Royal Lipizzan or Stallion Show. And they, sure. yeah. yeah, I remember out of uh, Florida and they had just gotten, and they, and the guy who owned the horses really believed in chiropractic and the, and they had just gotten a contract down at the Excalibur Casino down in Las Vegas to do a, a dinner show. Or they weren't doing the dinner show. They were doing like a lunch show. And they, they were trying to keep the arena where they do the jousting show in the evening. They were trying to keep that arena full and making some money. And somehow or another, they got my name from AVCA and because there wasn't a master list, I don't think, at the time. And so I started going down to Vegas to treat those horses and so, of course, I got licensed down there to because I was getting beyond where the 45 days that they limit it to. And then some of those riders would quit the show and move on and then say, hey, can you come treat my horse? And I'm like, it's a hell of a trip charge. So you better get me some more animals. And then I would get licensed in that state. And uh, and then that's how I ended up jumping over the Midwest and going to New England because one of them moved back east and started asking me to come out to the Boston area. And then that's so that's why I'm licensed out there. Was it a pain in the butt back then? There wasn't a lot of reciprocity. Did you have to study and take a lot of tests? There's not a lot of reciprocity now. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. The answer is yes. And now I need to, uh, and I'm actually going through the process again right now because, uh, you know, I go up and work the Iditarod and um, I've and they give us our license. We get a temporary license through through the uh, Iditarod Trail Committee. They get it for us. But I've had so many requests for some of my sled dog people that I'm like, okay, I think I need to get licensed up in Alaska. So at the end of this year, or well, we see what happens in 2021, right? I'm going to go ahead and go through that process again. But it's a little trickier now because I'm trying to find all my test dates and scores and everything. Oh, yeah. They, they, yeah, they yeah. still want a transcript from Purdue. I'm like, come on, right? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Three so, some odd years later? Of all the, the states you've taken tests for, who's had the uh, most picky? Wyoming. Do you remember? Anybody stand out? Yeah. yeah, Wyoming. Yeah, I had to fly out to Torrington, Wyoming, and I was getting my pilot's license at the time, so it made a really good um, cross-country reason to go do that. And uh, it was out, it's out on the plains. It's out on the eastern plains of Wyoming. And the test was they had a they had a slide section, of course, of which half of the slides were blurry. And then they had a practical section, such as um, like they had plants in a plastic bag and and they'd say, identify these plants. And it was pretty obvious the ones that said, don't touch, right? You know that those were going to be <laughs> something toxic. And then they'd have like brown bottles that had stuff in them and you were supposed to smell them and identify uh, what the substances were. And then you had to meet and you had to go through and do x-rays. 
And and then you had to meet with the group of them at the next day. And they're all sitting around a table and they're all staring at you. And then they're going through why you made all those mistakes on your test and asking you to justify yourself. And I was like, damn, I, I'd heard California was tough, but wow. Wyoming doesn't do that anymore. But I still remember that was like a nice, it was like a little hazing ritual of passage there. Yeah, geez. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you look at what the kids do now and you go, you guys have it so easy taking these tests now. I know. I always wonder why we have to be so stringent about these state lines. You know. Yeah. And especially now, because like, so even now with the issues going on with COVID, so many of the states have released uh, or have, have loosened up on like their telemedicine requirements and on some of their CE requirements, their online CE. And Utah has, has loosened up on their online CE, but they haven't loosened up on their telemedicine. And I'm like, really? They're still saying you have to physically see the dog before you can actually do a telemedicine consultation. I'm like, really? Wow. So, yeah. Well, everybody's different. And I'm, I'm just thinking about now that you talk about that, the, the amount of paperwork and you must have to keep track of to keep all those licenses current. Yeah. It was tricky until I had iCal and now I can just put it on the calendar and send myself alerts to remind me when we've got to pay, especially because many of them are going online now. I don't get anything in the mail. So, oh, sure. Yeah. Now, have you always basically pretty much been solo then in your practice? Uh, no, actually. I... Um, have had a lot of interns come through. And for a little while, I had three veterinarians. And then one retired and one went uh, to move closer to family. And I'm still looking for another one or two. So they were sequential, so one at a time? No, so, no. We had three of us okay. together. Yeah, we had three okay. of us together for about three years. Now, how's that changed your practice having lost them? Well, uh, it's definitely added more load. Um, and then COVID hit, right? At not yeah. not soon after. And so that changed also staffing issues at the front desk. So I've ended up cutting back on hours and uh, reviewed my charging and have uh, upped my charging a little bit. And actually, I'm working less, making the same or more. And and it hasn't been too bad. I've actually, I'm, I'm, I've got I'm booked out weeks. Yeah, I would think you must have a waiting list. Yeah, quite a long one. So when did you start getting into the sled dog thing? Well, so I've been always doing working dogs for a long time. Since the very first time I got asked to go up to Snowbird uh, and work on one of their avalanche dogs that had a broken pelvis and it was repaired surgically, but he was still having some issues. And uh, I said, great. So can you bring him in? No, he's working. Can you come to us? And I'm like, sure. And I'm thinking I'm going to be down at the lodge. So I get there and they throw me on before the first set of skiers. They throw me on to the tram and I go all the way up to the very top to uh, the, it's not Lone Peak, Twin Peaks um, uh, tram thing. And I'm working in the little, um, uh, the the ski patrolman lodge that has this amazing view of the bulls and I'm watching them shoot down avalanches. And I'm like, <laughs> could my job get any better? And, uh, and I worked on the dog up there. And so then, uh, so I've done avalanche dogs, a lot of police dogs, search and rescue dogs, all because of those initial things. A lot of those folks tend to have a little bit more natural, more integrative kind of approach to life anyway. And uh, then I saw that one of the local races was advertising for a veterinarian. And so I said, oh, I've never done any sled dogs. That sounds kind of fun. And it was just a local, like a two-person, two-dog race for the kids and a six-dog race for five miles or 10 miles um, for just kind of recreational mushers. 
And uh, so I called her and she said, yep, come on up. And my associate at the time and I went up there and worked the race and had a blast and uh, learned a lot. I mean, because I'm like, okay, guys, teach me what I need to know about these dogs because you guys know more about them than I do to the mushers. And so we worked that race for about three years. And one of them one year said, you guys ought to go up and work the Iditarod. And uh, I said, well, we don't know enough about sled dogs to go. And uh, she said, oh, they really only need bodies. You just don't worry about it. Just apply. So I thought, I wonder what it does take to apply to the Iditarod. So we applied in 2010. And I had blown, just blown my ACL and had it repaired. So when I talked to the head vet, he said, you know, you might not want to go out on the trail quite yet if you're not as strong as you think you should be. But why don't you come up and take the rookie vet trail class? Every, every veterinarian has to take a class by the International Sled Dog Veterinary Medical Association before they can go out on the trail to learn about the things that are unique about sled dogs. And uh, so we went up and took the class in Anchorage, decided that's really what we wanted to do. And then we went the following year in 2011 to do it as a bucket list. So we were just going to check the box. And we had so much, I don't know, fun, right? Why it's fun to go get frozen, to not get any sleep, to eat really crappy food. I don't know. I mean, I guess that speaks to something mentally off on me, but we had a blast. And I've gone back every year since. Nice. Now I know you've vetted, you've, you've done, you've vetted some endurance rides too. And Mm -hmm. is is there crossover in the philosophy, like what you're looking for? Um, Actually, it's, uh, it was surprising to me. Uh, The basic philosophy is the same. There's a, there's a lot of, a lot of difference in the actual um, action and the, um, and getting it done. And also the rules are different. Physiology, the dogs are different. Plus you're dealing with a team rather than dealing with an individual horse and rider. And uh, the thing that surprised me the first year that I worked um, Iditarod was that as an endurance veterinarian, I've got the power to scratch that horse and, and, and remove the horse from the race. And I, and I executed that sometimes. As a sled dog vet, I don't have the power to pull that dog if I think there's a problem. Uh, and that's because the head vet at Iditarod has spent many years trying to generate um, a non-confrontational a team, like a sled dogs, right? A team approach between the musher and the vet um, at a race and to to discuss what needs to be done and to make sure that because the musher is the ultimate lead dog and has to scratch the dog. And, uh, and then we were told that if we had any problems to go, like if there was a musher, absolutely would not scratch a dog that we thought needed to be scratched. Then we would go get the judge and then the judge would take care of it. And then that also pulled us out of the ultimate decision-making. And initially I was like, how come I don't have the power to do that? But after I worked a few races and I realized that it was all about creating dialogue, which can be challenging when it's minus 20, nobody's had any sleep. Um, you know, and you're trying to, you know, do what's best for the dog. Um, I realized that actually it, uh, I kind of like that approach because then you don't have bad feelings to carry over onto another race because everybody came to a mutual decision. And rarely, ra- I've only had to have a judge intervene once in the, t- in the nearly 10 years I've been working it. That's really interesting. I vetted a bunch of endurance rides and just, you know, having uh, somebody chirp in my ear that they don't think the horse is lame and, you know, that whole confrontation thing. And you're right. And then the next week you're at a ride and you're seeing the same people again and having to deal with all that, that that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have to ask you about working in the, in the Middle East. Yes. Tell me about that. It was interesting. Um, I love Dubai. 
and I would go back in a heartbeat. Um, but, you know, you just, it's, but I love to travel and I grew up traveling, right? So, uh, and it was interesting. I was just watching a Rick Steves travel thing on uh, Europe and he's got a book out that's called Travel as a Political Statement. And, and I think there's, uh, I haven't read the book, so I'm not exactly sure what he's saying, but I, I think what he was promoting is the fact that you go out there and you, you try to be very open and, and not be really ethnocentric and trying to share, right? And so that's how I grew up traveling because my parents were outside contractors for the State Department. So we went all over the place. And, and so for me, going to a place to travel is me going with curiosity and saying, oh, huh, how do you do this? And, you know, what do you do? And my mother had always taught me, always learn to say, please, thank you, and you're welcome in the language of every country you go to. And I'd added a few words like, I want to ride a horse or where's the bathroom, right? And yeah. um, and so when I went to that, when I had a chance to go to the Middle East, I mean, I jumped on it because I've never, I'd never been there. And it was one of the continents I hadn't been to. And, and, um, I just went to go learn and I already had some phone clients that were from there. So I, I went as a part of the U.S. equestrian team, the endurance team. So there was that aspect of dealing with the middle of, a, of the world championships and dealing with your team. But I also had the outside aspect of I had clients that were there who, uh, you know, took me around and showed me places. And I'd been dealing with their one veterinarian. And so uh, I got to meet him face to face. We totally hit it off. And we had I had a great day spending in his clinic with him. And I showed him a few little acupuncture point tricks. And, um, you know, and just learning about the country. And, um, you know, I mean, what can you say? It's it's I think every country is beautiful and it's just different. Right. But it's does it the difference doesn't make it less beautiful. So. Cool. Yeah. All right. I want to circle back because I, I you were uh, the 12th person to get the uh, FAA VA. Yeah. Was that the was that the first kind of big, big um, certification after IVIS and options and all that for you? Probably. And I think actually you were the one who encouraged me to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what was studying like for you then? Uh, I went to California and hung out in a friend's backyard in the sun and just pulled out all the books. And I mean, it wasn't getting back into a more memorization type studying. It took a little while to get back into that. But remember, I'd been having to take all these board exams too. So that had kept me fresh. And I'm a really avid reader. And so it wasn't really that much of a change. It was just a matter now of actually memorizing the fact to be able to put it down on a multiple choice exam. Yeah. So, and then not much longer, I mean, if I'm looking, if I get my timeline right, it was like five years later, you got boarded in sports medicine. Right. Because I'm crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll go over the second part, but, um, <laughs> you know, what was that like? being in practice and preparing for that exam? Well, the first one, the canine one. So what I did is I, and I had gone to AAEP, the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and Kevin Hostler had presented uh, a, a talk about the the burgeoning and the newborn American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehab. And I thought, and then Chris Zink is a good friend. And so she'd been talking to me about it. I'm like, you know, I like a good challenge. And I thought, oh, I think I, I, think I should do that because those things are always easier in the beginning, right? And um, so I flipped a coin, horses or dogs, it came up dogs, and I was getting ready. I applied, and I was getting ready to do that, and I broke my leg. And um, trying to get urine from a husky on an icy sidewalk. And um, I had some complications. Uh, I got an infection at the hospital, 
And um, so I was, it was a f- kind of fracture that was a, it was actually not really a, a major fracture. It was a separation at my ankle. And so I had to be non-weight bearing on it for like eight to 10 weeks. So that one was easy to study for because <laughs> I was sort of housebound anyway. Yeah. The next year I had applied for the equine one. And now I was not only playing catch up from not having worked for so many months, you know, in 2013, but then uh, that was... Uh, uh, there was something else that happened that year. I can't remember what it was. Something that was just, maybe it was just being busy. And so it was a much harder to study for the second one because I had much less time. So, And and correct me, but you're the only one that I know of that's double boarded, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Yeah. They, closed, they closed the window shortly after I did it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what's your, just tell me what a typical day is for you now. Um, a typical day in the clinic, right? In, yeah, a, in the yeah. clinic or outside of the clinic? Well, both. Let's They're do both, both, right? So yeah. uh, a typical day is I come in and have a little bit of touch base with my staff. Uh, I have one or two people that work throughout the day. And uh, we get started with appointments. Our appointments run anywhere from, we'll take about 30 to 45 minutes for vaccinations. And yes, we do some vaccinations, but uh, mostly on the youngsters to get them going. And then with rabies. Um but we, st- but I do a lot of titering. Um, and then uh, our new clients will be an hour and a half appointments and our rechecks can be an hour. Um, if I do, I do a lot of musculoskeletal ultrasonography. And so those appointments might be two hours if we have them scheduled. Um, and so the days have got a lot of variety. It can range anywhere from getting new puppies and kittens started outright to dealing with chronic disease in older patients to uh, getting animals back into the competition ring or the working uh, environment if they're, if they're competitive or working dogs. And then horses, I go out to ambulatory calls and it's uh, kind of pretty similar to the same thing, mostly acupuncture, chiropractic, but also some sports medicine diagnostics. So I do, you know, with thermal imaging and the lameness locator and, and maybe x-rays and an ultrasound too. Cool. Yeah. Well, Kim, I want to respect your time. So uh, thank you so much for talking with Absolutely, me. Absolutely, Neil. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. And I, I do appreciate all the work you've done with uh, interns over the years and, and lecturing and, and just being a, a good example. Well, thank leader you. In our part of the industry. Thank you. All right, Kim. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks. Have a great day, Neil. All right. You too. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.